Investigators, this episode dives into the unsolved murders of one of the most notorious serial killers you may have never even heard of. He has one of the longest rap sheets I've ever seen. Interactions with law enforcement, and those are just the times that he got caught. In this episode, an FBI crime analyst takes you into the mind of serial killer Samuel Little. He's the most prolific serial killer in American history that we've been able to confirm. You will hear from the killer himself talking about his victims. The FBI sharing these interviews from their vault in an effort to help close some of the cold cases. Where do you eventually take her, her body to? I was, I was headed toward California. Mm-hmm. So as I drove out of Las Vegas, I, didn't, I seen a motel and a road leading up to the motel. And I said, there's a lot of bushes and brushes us beside the road before he got to that motel. That's where I dropped. Notice his calm demeanor and lack of remorse, very chilling. But that is the scariest part of all because he could make himself seem like a friendly man. And yet all of his stories ended with him killing someone. So buckle up investigators and let's help solve the cold cases of Samuel Little. Investigators, you're on deadline. From the Hollywood Hills to your ear holes, this is True Crime Deadline, a podcast discussing cold cases, murder mysteries, and completely random thoughts. Now, here's your host, a man who stands in front of crime scene tape and talks on the TV box for a living, Mr. Mystery himself, Matt Johnson. Investigators, thank you for joining me for Season 5 of True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. I can't believe it. It's a brand new year, 2024, and we have a lot of new cases to dive into and talk about together. Thank you for hitting the subscribe button and rating the podcast five stars. It really helps. This podcast has grown so much since it began, so fast. It's considered one of the top 5%, according to Buzzsprout, our host. That's amazing. Thank you so much, everybody. Normally, I would start the episode by telling you about the small town or community where this crime happened in. Well, this is a little different. We can't really do that here because this convicted killer, serial killer Samuel Little, hunted all across the United States. FBI crime analysts on the case say that he told them he wouldn't be caught because he thought no one was accounting for his victims. Then back in 2012, a break in the case. Little was arrested and extradited to California for a narcotics charge. LAPD obtained his DNA, they ran a search, and he was convicted on three unsolved murders. Then the FBI Violent Crime Apprehension Program, known as VICAP, began to link Little to other cold cases. With the help of a Texas Ranger by the name of James Holland, Little confessed to 93 murders saying that he strangled his victims between 1970 and 2005. The FBI determined him to be one of the most prolific serial killers in U.S. history. This is a rare interview with one of the VICAP crime analysts working the case. My name is Christy Palazzolo. I am the supervisory crime analyst for the FBI's Violent Criminal Apprehension Program, or VICAP. At the time, I was responsible for cases out of California. And um, this case came across my desk because in 2012, 
the Los Angeles Police Department got a DNA hit on three of their cold case homicides from the 1980s. And the DNA all matched back to Samuel Little. And so off the bat, they knew he was good for multiple homicides. Um, But they also pretty quickly realized that Little was an extremely transient individual. And so we have been partnered with LAPD for years. And so knowing what VICAP could do, they reached out for assistance in helping flesh out his timeline, as well as look for any other cases that could be connected back to him, um, potentially outside of the LAPD jurisdiction. Um, So that's how I got brought in on the case. Um, When I did my analysis, I found a case out of Odessa, Texas, that I really strongly believed Little could be good for. And that information was sent to LAPD, but unfortunately at the time, Little wasn't talking uh, and they were moving forward with a trial to convict him on, they ultimately convicted him on those original three cases. Um, And in the Texas case that I had found, they didn't have any forensic evidence. So without any kind of confession or details from Little himself, they didn't have anything else to, to put him there. So it kind of fizzled for a while. And then uh, in 2018, um, we partnered with the Sexual Assault Kit Initiative, or SACI, and the representative for that who oversees SACI and also serves as the liaison to VICAP is Angela Williamson, and, or excuse me, Dr. Angela Williamson. And um, she met Texas Ranger Jim Holland, who has a very long track record of successful interviews with known serial killers and getting them to confess. And they were at a conference and an investigator from Florida reached out to Ranger Holland and said, you know, we have always kind of looked at this individual Samuel Little um, as potentially responsible for some cases in our jurisdiction, but uh, we were hoping that you could use your expertise to interview him. Unfortunately, you know, being a Texas Ranger, they, he can't just go off and interview anyone at the their request. So he needed a Texas connection. So uh, he reached out to us at BICAP and I said, yeah, go ask him about this Odessa case. That's your connection right there. Um, so in May of 2018, Angela, Jim and myself went out to California. Um, Jim interviewed Little in, um, in one of their interview rooms. Angela and I were in another room with a, an audio feed. And um, that's kind of how it all it all started. Wow. This is fascinating. What do we know about him? You, you kind of alluded to the fact that he's very transient. Um, what was his background and how would he run into his victims? And we'll get into his victims in a minute. But um, what do we know about him before he was apprehended? So he is one of the most transient individuals I've come across. Um, He really just crisscrossed the nation in his car and would stay at temporary lodging or motels or sometimes sleep in his car. Never really had a permanent address for any length of time. Um, Basically, once he dropped out of high school, uh, he just took off. And um, 
he he made his money by stealing things during the day and then he would turn around and sell those basically on the black market um, out of the trunk of his vehicle that's how he made his money he held a very few menial jobs uh early on but after that it was mostly just fencing stolen items so and- his whole life basically crime from the start of his day to the end of oh his God. day everything he has one of the longest rap sheets i've ever seen interactions with law enforcement and those are just the times that he got caught so he's being called you know one of the most prolific serial killers that we know that's kind of how the fbi has framed him why do they think that uh, has that been proven yeah so the way that we came to that determination is um prior to us knowing about little um the most the confirmed most prolific serial killer was gary ridgeway uh the green river killer up in the Pacific Northwest. Um, he had, I believe it's 49 homicide convictions against him. Uh, what happened with Little is in the work that we did and when he gave his confessions, we would go back and obviously try to match those two cases. And over the course of the years that we've been working on this case, we've been able to positively match him back to 62 cases. Um, and so he, he hasn't been charged in all of them uh, because unlike Ridgeway, Ridgeways were mostly all in the same state. And um, so pretty much the same uh, agency, whereas, uh, or the same group of agencies, I should say. With Little, he's all across the nation. And by the time he was identified as the offender, everyone kind of knew uh, his age, his health status, um, the fact that he was already in custody for life. And so many of them chose not to actually charge him, but to just close their case out, attributing it to Little. And so when you add all of those up, we're, we're up to 62 cases. Uh, and therefore, he's the most prolific serial killer in American history that we've been able to confirm. This is one of his confessions and the victim descriptions caught on camera by the FBI. The interview was conducted by Texas Ranger James Holland. The interview is about an unsolved case out of Las Vegas from the early 90s. I'll post the confessions on my YouTube channel, True Crime Deadline, and the pictures that he drew of the victims to my website show notes. Las Vegas. Describe the Las Vegas victim. That was in 93. Okay. I bought a uh, Eldorado. What color Eldorado? It was a yellow. Okay. Yellow Cadillac Eldorado. Yep. All right. What year? 78. Okay. Well, tell me about this girl. What does she look like? She was kind of thin, dark skin, about 40 years old when she was out there hustling. I think she was a drug addict because she wouldn't have been out there. How tall was she? She was about 5'5", five, 5'3". Five, five, and how she much do you think she weighed? She weighed about 110, 120. Okay. What about her did you know? The boy came, she left her son, and she called him over there. And he came over, hey, he shook my hand and everything, yeah. Now, how old was he? He was about 20 or about 19, 20. Okay, black male or? Black male. And where were you at when you met her? It was on Owens Avenue. Okay. Owens, that's down in the black section. Owens and Jackson. Where do you eventually take her, her body to? I was, I was headed toward California. Mm-hmm. So as I drove out of Las Vegas, I didn't, I seen a motel, 
in the road leading up to the rotel. And I said, there's a lot of bushes and brushes us beside the road before you got to that motel. That's where I dropped, pulled up her body out and rolled it down there. And I heard a secondary roll of noise. That meant she was still rolling. So you basically roll her into a pretty big ditch that's got a bunch of... Well, it wasn't a ditch, it was a slope. Okay. That didn't look like a slope because the vegetable, vegetation had grown up out of the right. slope and looked like you know it was you, you would think that the road would just be flat, but actually the road was going down a slope like, and that's why she rolled. So this is a slope right off the road? Yeah. Okay. And tell me about how far do you think you were outside of Las Vegas? The road I was on was going towards Searchlight. So whatever the name of that road is, that's the road I was on. How far outside of Las Vegas do you think you were? Were you in Las Vegas? About, I was still in Las Vegas, yeah. Okay. But I was on the very outskirts. All right. The very outskirts. There was a couple of motels I remember, a gas station there. It was scattered, dot, 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 because it was getting thin population as you go further out. Mm -hmm. And he's confessed to something upwards of 90, is that correct? He's confessed to 93 homicides. That's, in, that's insane, um, literally. What was his MO? Did he have one or was it, how would he kill his victims? Who were his victims? And what was the time frame that this was all going on? So he always killed his victims by strangulation. Uh, he never shot or stabbed anybody. He did say that sometimes there were a couple of victims that he strangled near a body of water and then he left their body in the water. So it's possible that their cause of death would have been drowning or something like that. But it, it's always strangulation is what he was after. Um, and, and basically he was the ultimate predator. He was very skilled at being able to read the crowd, read the people in a room, um, read the people on the street and identify those most vulnerable or highest risk victims target them. And by doing that, he was able to kind of operate with a little bit of anonymity because people may or may not be tracking those victims whereabouts or at least not so closely that within 24 hours, they'd know they were missing. You know, maybe it was very typical for that individual to not be in contact with someone for a few days, a few weeks, months even. Um, and so Little was really good at scanning a crowd and being able to pretty quickly identify the most vulnerable. Uh, and that's who he would target. So are we talking um, women um, women in the crowd? Are we talking about um, sex workers? Are we talking about people that were drug users? Who Was there a pattern? Drug users, sex workers, runaways, uh, sometimes not even necessarily that, but he would talk about being in a bar and he would see the woman who had people all around her, who was talking a lot, who had um, men with her or talking with her. And then he would spy the one woman at the end of the bar who no one was talking to and no one was 
giving a second glance at, and that's the person that he would go after. Here's another confession caught on camera with Samuel Little, who murdered a woman between 1992 and 1994. He believes her name may have been Ruth, and she may have lived with her mother in North Little Rock. Unfortunately, when he got out of jail, she was sleeping in his car, and he offered to give her a ride. She was never seen again. North Little Rock. Tell me what that girl looked like. Oh, man, I loved her. I forget her name. Oh, wait. I think it was Ruth. Okay. She was a heavy set, big old yellow gal. And had buck teeth. <laughs> it had a gap between the teeth, that's what it was. And she, she was like a honey colored skin. And she had, uh, like, her hair was not really long. It was, How tall do you think she was? She was about five. Seven. How much do you think she weighed? She weighed about close to, to 200, about 170. 180. Pretty pretty big girl. Yeah. Right. Now where did you meet her at? Okay, down in the crack house. I was, they heard about six other girls were sitting on the porch. Do some crack in there. I stopped to go in there. I seen the girls, that's why I stopped. We stayed together two days. Or more, I think about three days. We was going shoplifting. We went to Sears. We went to uh, Kroger's, and that's where I got busted. Mm -hmm. They took me to jail, and she went and stayed in the car. And the manager of Kroger's, got, I guess he got tired of her laying on his property in that car. He called the station where I was at in North uh, North Arkansas to drop the charges, mm -hmm. so he can come down and get this gal and car him. They cut me loose, so we was headed toward with that place where Walmart's uh, original store bent. I whipped off the road and back into that little woods. It was a cornfield back there. I pulled through it, and on the other side of the cornfield was a trash pile. I parked the car facing out where I could see anybody coming in. So I, I pulled her out of the car. She's too big for me to carry, carry her. So I just pulled her out of the car and laid on that trash that was left there. So was it like a cornstalk pile, or was it? Yeah, a bunch of cornstalks. What could you see from there? Uh, I could see the highway. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the woods is that way. But it's right outside of Little Rock. Uh, I was about 10 miles from it. From North Little Rock, you think 10 miles? Yeah, it was about 10 miles. Okay. But I've watched hundreds of hours of videos of him. Right. There's a, so there's a website that is dedicated to this killer in mm -hmm. hopes of helping out the families, right? And I guess that that's probably what drives you. And and you getting involved with this, and the reason why you're doing this interview is to shed more light on it and hopefully get answers for families. Is that right? Absolutely, that's that's why we do what we do. I mean, it's all about the, the families and the victims themselves, uh, trying to bring them whatever degree of justice we can at this point. They were, they were people, they were daughters or mothers or sisters or had loved ones that 
ultimately miss them and want to know what happened and deserve to know the truth. And, you know, maybe we're past the point of being able to bring them closure, but at least we can bring them the truth. Yeah, and some sort of resolution, some sort of answer. And and I like how you phrase that. That brings us to how we can get involved. So there is this website, and it's going to be in my my show notes of truecrimedeadline.com. And then on this website, it's very... It's very impressive, by the way, because there's video links. You can watch his interviews. You can see his odd behavior and how he almost takes pleasure in reliving it in his mind. What a sicko. But um, you can also see pictures of what he draws. And he's drawing um, images of what he remembers the victims to look like. Yeah. So what happened was um, when we the very first time that we went out in 2018 to interview him, um, while he was being interviewed, the guards went back and searched his cell and they brought us back some portraits that he had hanging up in his cell that he had drawn. And they were just you know, portraits of uh, celebrities, mostly, or politicians, movie stars, things like that. Um, but we recognized that he could draw a figure, he could draw a likeness, an identifiable likeness. And so we hatched the idea to ask him to start drawing his victims so that we could start putting those out and see if anybody recognized his victims just by his drawings of them. And how has that worked out? Has that helped solve some cases? Yep, definitely. We've had some kids, you know, he's not the best artist in the world, um, but he does have the ability to capture the victim. And what we have said about his drawings is it may not be exact, but oftentimes there will be that one aspect of the drawing that rings a bell in somebody's head, whether it's the jewelry he draws the victim wearing or the hairstyle that he gives the victim or a particular you know, body mark um, that she might have on her face or her neck or something like that. Um, but we have had multiple people call in and say, this looks like my loved one. Um, you know, she died or she disappeared years ago. Um, and then we've gone back, looked into the case and realized that in fact, it was one of Little's victims. It matches up to one of his confessions. Why is he cooperating in a sense? Well, on the drawing side of things, uh, like I said, that we discovered that in his cell before we ever went to talk to him, uh, or I guess when we went to talk to him, but before we got there, it was something that he was doing on his own time. So we knew that he enjoyed it. And he actually had a little bit of a history of, um, as an artist, he did a, like a graffiti mural um, down in Florida. I can't remember all the details on it, but um, he was known as a bit of an artist anyway. So we knew he enjoyed doing that. Uh, like I said, that was one of the arrangements that we made with him that, you know, if he would talk to us about his victims, that we'd be able to get him art supplies so that he'd be able to draw them so we could then take them and hopefully close cases with them. It was something that he was willing to do and have to twist his arm or anything. But um, yeah, it was, it was all part of the, you know, just an investigative tactic to try to get more information out to the public to help them um, identify or call in a tip to us so we could look at another case. I think it's amazing what you're doing and what the team is doing and what this ranger has done. Kudos to you guys. And I really hope that people do visit the site. Yeah. Cause I had wondered if he also wants to be like, he wants credit for what he did, these terrible acts that he did, you know, and maybe that's part of the reason why he's drawing them. Cause he wants them to be 
officially connected to him? I mean, that's been floated as a possibility, but I'll be honest with you, when it all started, it wasn't about who's who's the most prolific serial killer. Um, you know, I, I can't say exactly why he started talking because prior to us going out there, he had never confessed to anyone. Um, he'd never admitted guilt, even in the three that he was ultimately convicted of out, out of LA. So um, I can't exactly tell you, but um, I can say that he very clearly enjoyed telling his stories. And, you know, we, we did our homework and before we went out there, we researched him and we discovered that he had exhausted all of his appeals. So there was no chance that he was ever going to get out of jail. Um, he'd already been convicted on three homicides. He's looking at life in prison. Um, at this point, what would be holding him back from confessing? And when Jim got in there in the room with him uh, and started talking to him about it, I don't know, maybe he saw his opportunity to finally start telling his stories. And, you know, clearly he had run through them over and over in his head. They were so detailed that maybe this is finally his chance to open up to somebody. Tell me about Mary Ann. She's what you nowadays they call a transgender. She's a black male dressed up as a female. Okay, how tall is, is she? Mary Ann's about five, seven, seven, five, six. She weighed about 135, okay. one, maybe 140. And how old do you think she was? But she was 19. Okay. And where was she from? No, I'm Miami, down in Liberty City. Okay. And did she, um, you mentioned before she had a boyfriend or she talked about a boyfriend? Her name Wes. Wes? Yeah, yeah. And tell me about where you met her at. I've seen her down at DeGuar on 17th Avenue. And she had on a short cream miniskirt, mm -hmm. cream and red. So then this opportunity popped up, mm -hmm. take her to the store. Right. Instead of me bringing her back to the apartment, I went down to the seventh seat. That's going down to uh, Fort Lauderdale, mm -hmm. called the uh, Alligator Alley. It, it turns into, it runs into Alligator Alley. Right. But the further out you get, Further you get out of Miami, right. and you, you got vegetation there. Now, how far outside of Miami do you think you were? About, it wasn't too far out of Miami, right okay. there. I was in my stepdad's car, Pontiac Lemans. Now, where'd you take her to? Continue down 27. Mm -hmm. Got back on 27. Going outside of Miami. Okay. Miami. Going away from Miami. Going away from Miami. We okay. got down past the uh, Past the let's say limits, so I continued on toward for a lot of that, okay. and I seen a road going off the main road back into the station mm -hmm. on the left side. So I got her out of the car, pulled her out, and drug her into the growth back there, and pulled her deeper into is a path, a little path was running. Somewhere, I don't know where it led it to, mm -hmm. but it was running deeper into the undergrowth. Mm -hmm. it, it's like uh, Everglades like that. And we ran into uh, uh, some water running. 
And, but before we got to the water, the earth was mushy. I turned loose and she fell into it face down. And how far outside of Miami do you think you were? About a mile, two miles. Uh, what year did Marianne occur? Uh, 72. Okay, 1972. Is there anything else that people should know about the places that he's been? Is there some some cases that particularly stick out to you or areas? He has really been all over. He's been he's confessed to homicides in 19 different states, um, and we still have confessions out of about 10. Um, the majority being out of the Los Angeles, California area. Um, so he's really been just about everywhere. A couple of things that I would hope that your audience would take away. Uh, the first being, if anything, sounds at all familiar. Um, even if you think it's a long shot, um, I, I really urge them to read the confession details that we have released, watch the videos if you want to, um, but just take a look. And if you have anything at all, please do reach out, please do submit your tips. Um, we've had multiple victims who, when we finally found the case, the reason we couldn't find it before is the victim's death was ruled uh, an accidental overdose or a natural homicide, or I'm sorry, a natural death. Um, so, you know, there are, and we think that that's probably happened more, and that's why we still can't find some of the cases to match back to his confessions. Uh, because there is no police report for us to to find that it doesn't exist because it was never ruled a, a crime. Um, so we really need the public's help. And um, I would really ask your listeners to please take a look and submit anything that you think might match up. And the other thing I would say would be just almost like a public service announcement for me in all of the videos that I've watched of him and all of the interviews that he gave the biggest takeaway for me is when he wanted to, he could absolutely turn on the charm. He could be funny, engaging. That man knew how to tell a story, but that is the scariest part of all because he could make himself seem like a friendly man. And yet all of his stories ended with him killing someone. And so you can see why his victims initially felt safe enough to get in his car to go off with him but it just breaks your heart because you know how it's going to end. So, you know, there are a lot of shows out there that depict murderers as these monsters that you look in their eyes and you can see that they're evil or things like that. Um, I think Little is the exact opposite of that, that if you met him on the street, you'd have no idea what he had done in his past. And so to just be careful out there that you never know who you're dealing with, um, you know, I would never want somebody to be too trusting and end up in a similar situation because they thought that that person was okay. From what I understand, if someone has a tip, they can contact FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Or they can submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. All right. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing and for helping these families and for getting justice for, for all these women. Well, that's why we're here. And, you know... We're going to keep pushing. We're going to keep doing it. You know, the case isn't closed. This isn't over. Things got a little more complicated after he died and we no longer were able to take potential matches to him to have him weigh on, in on it or say whether he recognized 
a victim's photo or something like that, but that doesn't mean the work is over. We'll keep going until we've got that last victim identified. In December of 2020, Samuel Little died at the age of 80. He was serving three life sentences in California, and he had 60 confirmed victims, but confessed to 93. If you have any information to help solve the other cases, please call the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI or submit a tip online at tips.fbi.gov. I'll have a link in my show notes along with pictures that he drew of the victims. I'll also post those confession videos on my YouTube channel, True Crime Deadline. Investigators, until next time. Thank you for investigating True Crime Deadline with Matt Johnson. For more information about the podcast, visit truecrimedeadline.com. And remember, all tips regarding a case should go to the police. Until next time. Now a post-episode shout-out to an investigator who wrote a review on Apple Podcasts. Thank you. This one comes from Bridget. It's titled, Your Podcast is a Favorite. I love your podcast as much as seeing you report on crime TV. My family has a podcast, Hearth, Home, and Homicide, and we're learning so much through your professionalism and compassion. Keep telling the stories of the victims and the impact of the crime. Thank you, Bridget. Thank you, Bridget. That's an awesome note. And good luck to your podcast. I'll check it out. And if you haven't done so already, please hit five stars, subscribe, tell a friend, write a review, and it just might be read on an upcoming episode. Also, follow us on Instagram and the YouTube channel. Now a little Easter egg for the end of this episode. Remember I had a French bulldog named Mr. Gatsby who died suddenly from cancer two years ago? Well, when I was editing this story, this clip was included in the interview. Take a listen. I was muting myself because my French bulldog is snoring in the background. And um, I just, um, again, I've said it over and over again. I appreciate you so much. Thank you. So in honor of Mr. G, my crime-fighting canine, we are going to end the episode the way that we did when we started the podcast. And remember to hug your pet for me. Here you go. Mr. Gatsby, want a cookie? Good boy. Thank <laughs> you.